Hey, just wanted to let you know that in this episode, we're going to be talking about sexual assault, self-harm, and drug abuse. If you are uncomfortable with any of those topics, it might be better to skip this one out and check out another one of our episodes. Okay, here we go. It was evening after work. And I remember sitting on the couch. What, what Bennett did in that case was, I, I think he just... You would have well, settled. Well, I would have done... I thinking done to myself, I could buy so much heroin with the money in my bank account. My boyfriend was standing behind me and he said, you are going to go to rehab tonight. I'm going to check you in or I'm leaving. I can't do this myself anymore. I can't watch you do this to yourself. I remember doing a group session three or four days into rehab and something happened and I like laughed spontaneously. <laughs> and immediately had a panic attack. Curled up in the corner, like shaking and breathing and thinking I was having a heart attack. And after I talked to the therapist, what I realized was that I had been happy for a moment. The idea of just being happy was terrifying because what comes after being happy? I, I didn't know anymore. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and that was Melissa Urban detailing a choice at a crucial junction in her life. Before, Melissa had been dragged through hell on earth, a road filled with nothing but trauma, depression, and addiction. Today, however, Melissa lives on the opposite extreme, maintaining her own brand, Whole30, which she created to inspire and empower others to take control of their physical and mental health. This passion for teaching self-reliance stems from the low points in her life. Lows that she prays no one will suffer. When I hear such a tumultuous life, I picture a lack of familial structure or a broken childhood. But Melissa's childhood was quite the opposite. It actually started in a loving Catholic home. So I grew up in Nashua, New Hampshire, which is right on the border of Massachusetts. I had two parents who stayed married for all of my childhood and formative years. My mom went to church every Sunday, and so did the kids. We did all of our, you know, all the sacraments, the first communion and confession and went to Sunday school. It was a very, what you would consider, white, middle class upbringing. My mom's side of the family was like a physical force, and we got together as a family every single Sunday after church. Anyone who could manage would come over to grandma's house and she would make coffee and we would bring pastries from the Portuguese bakery in Nashua and everyone would just get together and sit and catch up. And sometimes there would be 40 or 50 people for a sit down meal and it would be this giant potluck and everyone would bring something and the dessert table would just be like overladen with these delicious desserts and treats and we would sit around playing cards. My uncle taught me how to play poker from a really early age with like nickels and dimes. And so I have a lot of fond memories of that growing up. What I started to notice as I got older 
was that the rule in my family was that if you don't look at it and you don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. And it it was like any time something negative would happen, anything that the family perceived as negative, whether it was a relationship not working out or somebody being sick, the entire family as a whole just sort of has this practice of really just minimizing and kind of shoving under the rug the bad stuff that's happening. And I very much grew up like that. I remember finding out someone in the family had cancer very far into their cancer. And I remember saying to my mom, like, why did I not know this? And she was like, well, we just didn't really see a need to tell you. And to me, that was baffling. I was old enough at that point that I was like, I'm not a child. I'm fully capable of navigating difficult situations. But what was imprinted upon me from a very young age is that when bad stuff happens, you just shove it all down. You don't talk about it. You don't bring it out into the open. You kind of just pretend it doesn't exist and that's how you handle it. The overprotective nature of Melissa's extended family served as a model for her parents' behavior. Although love and support were always abundant, tough realities were suppressed. Her family, specifically Melissa's mother, was uncomfortable with the messy realities of life. But for a time, there was no messiness, at least for Melissa. That wouldn't last. Soon, Melissa would be confronted by something that would have cascading effects on her personal life and her familial relationships. We were not exposed to a lot of the big bad things that happen in in the real world. And, And the family really insulated or protected us from that. And all of that leads up to what happened when I was 16. It kind of started a few years earlier. There, There's a family member who was 10 years older than I was and someone I loved and looked up to. There were some incidents at 14 and 15 in which I, ra- I now recognize as kind of grooming or testing situations where I felt like it was perhaps maybe a little inappropriate or I felt weird about the way he was sitting with me or where his hand was when we were watching a movie. But I felt also kind of singled out and special in that moment. Remember, this is an enormous family. There's always just a dozen kids hanging around looking for attention. But I also felt really flattered and special that like this person was choosing me. And when I was 16, my parents took a trip and they left me with a family member for a few days. I couldn't go with them because at this point I was 16 and I had a part-time job at the local neighborhood pharmacy. Over the course of the few days that I stayed with them, I found myself really swept up in a party atmosphere. This person was so much older than me, 26 at this point. You know, he would have people over, there would be drinking, he would let me drink. I had no exposure to alcohol up until this point. Like, I might have had a beer, but certainly I found myself drinking a lot and really drunk. I don't remember a ton about the actual incident, I think in part because I shoved it down for such a long time, but essentially over the course of the next few days, he sexually assaulted me. It was all manipulative. There was no force. It was never a like a physical force situation. But there was a lot of like, this is what you do when you love somebody. 
And if you loved me, like this is, this is how you would show me you loved me. And when I resisted or expressed an uncomfortability with the situation, he would reject me for the rest of the day and not pay attention to me. I blamed myself for such a long time because, you know, it wasn't like I was held down at gunpoint, but I was 16 and he was a lot older and this was someone that I looked up to and I trusted. And over the course of the next few days, like I had my first sexual experience in this fashion with this person manipulating me into believing that this was how it was supposed to be when you loved someone. That was the impression of sex and love that I was given at 16 years old, that I didn't have a right to my own body, that if I really cared about someone, I would let them do whatever they wanted, and that if I didn't let them do whatever they wanted, they weren't going to love me anymore. Societally, we have this preconceived notion that sexual assault is often associated with violence, with being held at gunpoint, as Melissa put it. But what Melissa reveals here is that sexual assault doesn't have to be physically executed to cause mental trauma. Flattery in itself can be a form of manipulation. And as a young teenager trying to find her place in the world, she clung on to any form of validation she received. She wholeheartedly trusted her family to nurture and protect her. And that blind trust was broken, shattered into a million pieces along with her own self-image. When that weekend was over, I went home and my parents asked how it was and I said it was great. Um, I certainly did not want them to find out about the drinking and the partying. I knew I would be in so much trouble for that. I had a few voices in my head. One of the voices was his saying, you asked for this. You wanted this. You know, you didn't say no. You, You drank with me. I had this idea in my head that he planted there that this was essentially my fault. This was my doing. And I knew if people found out that I would get in trouble for it. And the only way that I knew how to handle it by watching what my family did is to pretend it didn't happen and not talk about it and not show any emotion on it. I swallowed it whole. And the next time I saw him at a Sunday gathering, I pretended everything was fine and nothing had happened and it was business as usual. And when he wanted to take us out for lunch, I went out for lunch. And when I saw him at a holiday, I gave him a big hug and a kiss and we played cards. I went on for a year and I didn't tell a soul. It was obvious from that moment on to anyone watching, my parents, my sister, my other family members, kids at school, my teachers, that I was not the same person. Everything about my behavior and my attitude changed in that moment. I was no longer the bright, sunny, naive, kind of open-eyed, hopeful, determined person. Everything started to collapse at that point. I began drinking, for one. I began dating a man um, who turned out to be abusive. He was jealous. He was controlling. When I did things that he didn't like, he would, you know, hit me or slap me. On one occasion, he choked me. And I stayed in that relationship for a really long time, in part because it was echoing what I already knew, which is, 
my job is to show up and do what this person wants. And if I do what they want, they're going to love me. And if I don't do what they want, they won't. I began acting out with my parents. I was sneaking out at night to go out with this boyfriend. I was shoplifting things occasionally, like I never got caught. Everyone wanted to know what was wrong with me. And at this point, my parents were having problems and perhaps talking about separating. I remember people wondering if maybe what was going on at home was impacting how I was. And what they didn't know was that this sexual assault had changed absolutely everything about who I was as a person and how I showed up in the world. Melissa's upbringing had taught her to ignore adversity and trauma instead of confronting them head on. So as she continued to bottle up feelings of guilt and insignificance, she began to develop her own coping mechanism, self-destructiveness in the form of alcohol and abusive relationships. To be clear, Melissa was trying to distract and numb. She wasn't trying to be self-destructive. She just didn't know how to exist. The little girl who dressed up as Wonder Woman in Halloween, who approached life with such optimism, was buried alongside the memories of her assault. And Melissa's lack of a support system only served to accelerate her descent into self-destruction. In time, her bottled emotions would burst forward. At what point did you decide to tell someone what was really going on and who was that person that you told? So it was summer. It was a year later. And I'm at home and my dad is sitting at the kitchen table and he's talking to someone. I don't remember who was in the house with him, but he had a a friend over and they were sitting at the kitchen table talking. I remember it was a very hot day. And so I had gone into the bathroom to wet my hair and had it like kind of all slicked back and was just kind of wandering around the house, like thinking about what I was going to do and trying to cool off. And there was a knock at the front door. And this was unusual. People usually came in through the garage door, but there was a knock at the front door, which was kind of a formal, a formal thing. And it was this person. And he poked his head in and said, hi to my dad. My dad said, hi, my dad. And he had a very good relationship. And he said, like, hey, I, I just wanted to come by and see if Melissa was around and see if I could take her for a ride. And in that moment, I broke. I broke. I remember thinking, I can't, I can't do this for one more second. I can't do it for one more second. I broke. And I sent him away. And I sat down at the table with my dad. And I said, Dad, I have to tell you something. And he was like, okay, what? And I think what I said was I had sex with this person. I didn't say I was assaulted. I didn't say I was raped. I didn't, I didn't indicate anything because again, I felt like it was my fault and that I was going to be in trouble. But I said to him, I had, I had sex with this person. And he was like, what? And I explained when you and mom were gone and you left me with these people over the course of those three days, this is what happened. And my dad sat. I remember him just saying, like, sit tight. Stay home. Don't talk to anyone. And I remember him leaving the house. And I found out later that he had gone to confront this person. And I remember they had a, from what I was told, from what my dad told me, they had a very powerful, you know, confrontation where my dad got physical with him and asked him what happened. And this person, you know, kind of confessed and said, like, yes, this did happen. And 
But what I remember after that is my mom coming home and having to tell my mom. And that was, I don't know what I expected. I think what I expected was what I got and what I hoped for was simply not feasible. What did you hope for? I hoped that my mom would think it was terrible and would tell me that it wasn't my fault and would comfort me and hold me and tell me how sorry she was and work with me and my dad as a team to figure out how we could handle this together. I I mostly just hoped that my mom wasn't going to blame me. And of course, you know, when I told her, her first instinct was to say, we can't tell anybody. We can't tell anybody. I remember my mom saying, we can't tell anyone. This would absolutely kill the family. What do you think her intentions were with saying that? What was she trying to do? My parents did the best they could with an impossible situation. My mom did the best she could. And the best she could do at this moment was to do what she had done her whole life and what had been modeled for her her whole life, which is to say, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to look at it. We're going to pretend it didn't happen. At the time, I remember saying to both of my parents, I also don't want you to tell anyone. Please don't tell anyone. I was terrified. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I felt like it was my fault and that everyone would blame me. And I, I, in that moment, what I was told was like, okay, this is something that happened and like, we're not going to talk about it again. And that's kind of, with very few exception, what I spent the next few years doing. This is like, how do you, and, and I, and, and this is kind of, I guess maybe not completely related to the story, but like, how do you, how can you tell like a story like this? Like, how do you have the strength to tell a story like this? Cause like you're, you're being incredibly like honest and open and it seems like how, how is that not wounding? Oh, it is. I mean, it is. It is. I could, I am incredibly close to tears for that 16-year-old girl who felt so alone and so scared and so ashamed. I do a lot of therapy visualizations where I take care of her the way she really deserved to be taken care of. But I am, I have learned over the decades of therapy I have done around this. I mean, this is, you know, I'm 46 now. This is 30 years ago, and I still can't talk about it without getting choked up. And it is a wound, and we are reopening the wound, but I'm also very tired of hiding any piece of this. That sickness that led me to some of the behaviors that happened post-assault, it, it that stuff thrives in the dark. And I have done enough therapy and I have done enough work that I have found my voice in this. And if I can use my voice and share so plainly the things that happened to me and how I felt about them and how they impacted me and how I reacted to them, if I can share that so plainly that it gives someone else a moment of finding their voice, then I am more than happy to do that. I can't 
imagine having to face such a difficult situation. And I admire Melissa immensely for mustering the strength to speak so openly about her dark past for the benefit of others. Through all this, I think it's important to recognize that deep down, Melissa knew that she wasn't at fault. And it was at this point that I wanted to give the younger Melissa a hug. I wanted to show her some semblance of humanity at a point where she had been discarded, undervalued, and made invisible. I wanted to give her the compassion that she so sorely needed, but that those closest to her were incapable of giving because they couldn't accept the gravity of the situation. Her mind was in a bad place. She had a guiding principle. Don't reveal your pain. So she tried to bury that pain even deeper, shoving it into her subconscious, even as it continued to control her every move. Dealing with all these things at 16 and not really having the support structure that someone would need and you would need to actually move through this. Going into college, how did you rationalize your family's response to everything that was happening and how did you... How did you just like live? Again, I was deeply committed to trying to eat this and swallow it and pretend like it wasn't as bad as it was and, uh, you know, tell myself that I was making too big a deal out of it. And that suited what my mom specifically wanted just fine, which is like, we just don't need to bring this up again. When I got to college, I immediately had all of the freedom that I did not have when I was home with my parents the least amount of responsibility, and I now had access to any self-destructive behavior I could get my hands on. And I did a deep dive into every single one of them as fast as I possibly could. I think my first semester of college, I got like a 1.4 GPA. I did nothing but go to parties, get as drunk as I possibly could, accept any drug that anyone would give to me. At this point, it was mostly pot, but like anytime it was offered, I would take it. And I became incredibly promiscuous. I slept with anyone who wanted to sleep with me. And I slept with people that I didn't even want to sleep with because... If I flirted with someone in any capacity, if I led them on in any way, if my skirt was short or I looked especially pretty that night, I felt like I owed them. I had no concept of like the right to my own body. I learned that my body is not my own and that the good, the right thing to do when someone expects something of me and my body is to give it to them. And I didn't enjoy it, and I wasn't happy, and I didn't feel good about myself. But I learned in therapy later that what I was doing was essentially repeating the pattern of my sexual assault and hoping that one of these times it would end up differently. I would meet a guy, I would have a crush on him, even if it was just at a party, he would pay me attention, he would tell me he liked me and that I was interesting and that I was pretty. And I would pray that instead of just wanting me for sex, he would want to, like, take care of me. He'd want to get to know me. He would want to maybe, maybe date me or in some way, like, protect me at this party. And it never worked out that way. It always ended with me having sex on a beer-covered 
ping pong table. I figured at that point, halfway through my freshman year in college, that what I was good for and what people liked me for was because I would give them sex. And that was the crux of my self-worth for the next, I don't know how many years. I had roommates my freshman year of college. One of the girls that I was roommates with, I became very close. And because she was my roommate, like nothing snuck by her. She enjoyed going to parties. She enjoyed drinking, but she was an athletic training major and she took her major very seriously and, and keeping her studies up. And it was clear that our two paths were diverging as time went on. And at the end of our sophomore year, she said to me, I'm going to live with some other people because my behavior had become at that point so destructive and so damaging in terms of just our environment. I was borrowing clothes from her without telling her, eating her food without telling her. There's probably a good chance I stole money from her. Like I was devolving at this point and... She was a very, very good friend, and also I had just pushed past every one of her boundaries, and the, you know, the friendship and roommate situation wasn't healthy for her anymore. So, How did it feel with her telling you that? I remember having kind of like a screw you attitude when she told me. It was this weird dichotomy where like deep down, I knew that I was behaving terribly. And I did not blame her whatsoever for setting a boundary and moving out. I didn't blame her. I was a terrible person. And also, I was kind of mad. I was mad at her for abandoning me. I kept, I just wanted someone to see how much I was hurting. And it was hard for for anyone to see that because I wouldn't let anyone in enough, right? I, I wouldn't ever share enough of what was going on behind the scenes. And at this point in college, I was continuing to just look for ways to distance myself from my physical body. You know, first it was drinking and and then I found drugs and that, that became a whole separate issue. But I didn't give people the opportunity to get to know me and to share some of what I was struggling with. And yet secretly deep down inside, I really wanted her to spot like, wow, Melissa, this isn't actually you. It was too much to ask to expect anyone at that level, especially at a new college, to to be able to have that experience with me. But I pushed her away harder than she pushed back on me because that was my defense. Melissa had no way out. She was caught in a cycle of destructive behavior with no incentive to stop. She was crying a silent plea for help, but that coping mechanism rooted in a detachment had her running away from her family. She was unable to confront her issues, so instead, she did what her family had done. Ignore. Sweep problems under the rug. As a result, she tumbled further down this destructive route without a soul at her side. My junior year is where my drug use got really bad. Ever since the assault, I had been looking for something to take me outside of myself. And if I could just get some kind of assistance with that process, some kind of 
chemical assistance, behavioral assistance? Like, what can I do to make it easier for me to detach from this experience, to like numb myself out and run away? Drinking was the easiest thing because it was so prevalent on college campuses, but it didn't work for me. I would definitely drink and I definitely got very drunk on a lot of occasions, my freshman and sophomore years of college, but it didn't do what I wanted it to do. It didn't take me outside of myself. It didn't numb me enough. I didn't enjoy it enough. Like it, it just wasn't going to work for me. But when I found pot, I immediately was like, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. Here we go. I smoked my first joint my freshman year of college with a friend of mine that was visiting and it was perfect. It was exactly what I wanted. It numbed me out. It took me out of my experience. It gave me a diversion. And I thought, this is what I need to do. I had met a person back in Nashua, a friend of a friend who was a pretty big drug dealer in the area. And he became my like boyfriend. And as fast as he could get me, a drug, any drug. I didn't care what it was, how much it was, whether I tried it, whether it went well with the other drugs I was doing, like whatever he could get for me, I was doing. I was the girl who would do anything. I would try anything, I would mix anything, and I stayed as high as I could for as long as I could for the next four years. And then eventually I just kind of stopped going to all of my classes. So I remember like three quarters of the way through my junior year having to go to my counselor, somebody in the registrar's office. And I was like, I haven't been to classes in a couple months. I made up some other excuse. This was at the point actually where my parents were divorced. So I remember telling my counselor, like my parents divorced after 25 years of marriage and it's just really hitting me hard and I'm not processing well. Like I would like to drop out of my classes right now and just take a year off and kind of think about, you know, what I want to do, but I'm, I'm just really struggling with my mental health right now. And they totally bought it. I got to drop out of my classes and instead of failing out, I just got like zeros or withdrawal or whatever you do. Melissa ran from her feelings into the arms of the first thing in her life that made her feel good. The first thing that masked the sadness and pain she felt incessantly knocking at the door of her psyche. First, it was alcohol, then marijuana, And although in moderation, weed can be a rite of passage into young adulthood, in her eyes, this drug was stigmatized. That stigma, that taboo, spurred excessive use and seemingly logical next steps towards harder drugs. She sought higher highs to mask her trauma after her tolerance hit a peak. Her psychology was becoming warped. She had no idea that this quest for release would only magnify her problems. As her relationships and reputation continued to deteriorate, so did her self-control. I left school and knew that I couldn't go back to Nashua. I couldn't. I dropped out halfway through my junior year and I moved down to Virginia to stay with my dad and Susan, where I picked up the exact same behaviors and the exact same patterns and the same kind of drug dealer boyfriend there that I had back in New Hampshire. Like nothing actually changed. (laughs) Did you realize that it was the same and it wasn't actually what you had set out to do? I think I had aspirations for starting fresh by moving to Virginia. And I also think I knew that it wasn't going to happen. 
I couldn't stop using. If I stopped using, I would be slammed in the face with not only the assault, not only my sexual assault. Now on top of it, I have to be slammed in the face with the fact that I essentially failed out of college. I mean, this was bad. My parents were not happy that I had dropped out. They had helped to support me through college and had spent a lot of money. And like, I didn't even know what I was going to do with my life anymore. I couldn't stop using at that point. I got a part-time job working like evenings doing telesales. So I was selling like extended warranties on electronics. And the best part was that I worked from 3 p.m. to like 9 or 10 p.m. every night. So I immediately made druggy friends. And so my habit really picked up when I was in Virginia. The job wasn't that hard. I mean, I could be super high and still sell an extended warranty. In fact, sometimes I was like better at it because I was more relaxed and the drugs got harder. I tried, I started doing heroin for the first time when I lived in Virginia because the, the man I met and started to date started to get into heroin with his roommates. And that's, that's when I jumped into that. No longer was Melissa just using drugs to cope. They were her ticket out of reality into a dimension of numbness and unnatural euphoria. She had let her wounds fester to the point where she no longer felt them even as the pus continued to ooze out from underneath that flimsy band-aid of ignorance. She couldn't bear to look at herself, the once promising little girl whose pain had turned her into a drug addict and a college dropout. How could she bear to face this reality? I have a really hard time talking about heroin and talking about ecstasy. Those were the two that I did the most often which really makes sense if you think about it. Those are incredible, out-of-body, disassociative experiences that when you come out of them make you believe that nothing in your real life could ever be as good as that. The first time I tried ecstasy, I just remember thinking, I never want to come out of this. I spent the next three years chasing that initial high. I felt good. I felt clean. I felt whole. I felt worthy. It was like all of the dirt and heaviness and sludge that I had like eaten and was wearing and was carrying was like gone. And coming out of it was one of the most traumatic and depressive experiences. And I would, I took it over and over and over again. And I came out of it over and over and over. And every time it got harder to be back in my body. I have a hard time talking about it. I don't wish heroin on anyone. I don't wish the experience of heroin on anyone. It's... It's nothing that you should be able to experience because every single thing in the real world, at least if you're using it to run away, everything else in the real world just pales in comparison. I lost the ability to have actual emotion. I spent the last two years of my using career only having chemically altered emotions. I was happy because a chemical made it happy. I was depressed because the chemical went away. I had energy because the chemical was giving me energy. I slept because I took a different chemical to help me sleep. I didn't have a 
I didn't have a, a natural experience. I had forgotten what it was like to actually feel things because I had been shoving my feelings down for such a long time. And then on top of it, numbing them out and just rewiring my brain in such a horrifically super normal fashion. This was where the wheels really started to fall off my bus. I stayed in Virginia for six months. While I was in Virginia, I did pick up therapy again, but I used that therapist to drug seek. At this point, I was so good at getting what I wanted. I was the master manipulator. And at this point now, I was seeking Clonopin and Valium and Xanax and Ambien. I mean, I remember, I can't tell you how many nights I would crush that Ambien up and snort it and wander around my parents' house in a daze, like eating and having phone conversations with no recollection the next day. My, I remember my stepmother waking up one morning and... The kitchen counter was a mess. There was food everywhere. The fridge door was open and she was like, what happened last night? And I had no memory whatsoever. And this was the point where I was like, I think I have to leave Virginia. My parents are starting to catch on that something's not right with me. And I think it's time that I bounce, right? Anytime someone started to suspect that something was not right with Melissa, I just ran away and I went to a new location. At the same time as leaving Virginia, my boyfriend, the heroin dealer, his roommate died. His roommate overdosed. I remember that scared me. I was not injecting heroin. I was not an IV heroin user. I only snorted it. But it was still scary enough that I thought that once again, just like when I was in college, I felt like I was getting in too deep and a change of scenery is what I would need to pull myself out of it. My mom had remarried at this point, and I said, can I come home and can I stay with you guys for just like a month or two until I find a place to live? And they said yes. This part is really fuzzy, in part because I was just so high all the time, in part because the drugs were their own issue at this point. I could no longer live my life. I had to chemically wake myself up, get myself through my day, get myself to sleep. It was a balancing act. Nothing was fun. It was all maintenance. Nothing was working the way that it used to. I began cutting my arms. I couldn't feel anything. This was one way I could feel something is literally like cutting at my own skin. And I think at the same time, though, I was hoping someone would notice. I just wanted someone to look at me and say, like, there's something wrong with you. And it's not your fault, but we need to figure out what it is and we need to get you the help that you wanted. And it was a solid year and a half before that happened. How did it happen? When I moved back to New Hampshire, staying at my mom and her husband's house was very short-lived because my stepfather said to my mother about a month after, your daughter's on drugs, you know. My mom, very sheltered, has zero experience with this. She didn't know what to look for. And probably she didn't want to believe it, like any parent would. She didn't want to believe it. And they finally kicked me out. I found an apartment by myself. I began working. I made a new group of friends who also liked to smoke pot and party, but like they didn't like it like I liked it. And in that group of friends, I met a man named Nathan, who I still to this day refer to as my favorite ex-boyfriend. And we began dating. And my behavior 
got better while I was dating him. He was a really good, solid, steady presence in my life. He was like that person I had been looking for. He was a good man. And for a little while, things felt smoother and calmer, and I felt like I didn't have to run away so hard. And that lasted about a year, and then it all fell apart again. I couldn't get enough pills to self-modulate. I couldn't get my emotions in check. I was behaving really terribly towards this boyfriend to the point where he was like, I don't think you're okay and I think that you need help. And I totally blew him off for as many weeks as he would let me. He said, I see you and like, you're not okay. All it made me was terrified that this person was going to be the person that was going to make me have to bolt again. I think at this point, I was way too far down my path of drug addiction for me to want someone to help me get better. The only thing I wanted out of life was to keep using. And I would do anything and screw anyone over as long as I could keep using. I mean, I recognized that I was, that things were just completely unraveling and I didn't know what to do about it. What can you do when your prevailing source of happiness turns out to be your greatest torment? Drugs shackled Melissa to an endless cycle of self-destructive behavior, but it also temporarily freed her from the frustrations of reality. This duality only exacerbated her long-standing struggles to find something that would provide her unconditional love and safety. Underneath all the drugs, Melissa was hurting. But giving up ecstasy meant losing that temporary relief of feeling like the good girl again. It meant facing the reality of her addiction, which might actually kill her. Melissa had to make a choice. Either step across the threshold away from her drug dependency or close the door and continue her downward spiral. It was evening after work, and I remember sitting on the couch, and my boyfriend was standing behind me, and he said, you need help. One of two things is going to happen. You are going to go to rehab tonight. I'm going to check you in, or I'm leaving. I can't do this myself anymore. I can't watch you do this to yourself. Those are your choices. And I remember sitting on the couch and thinking to myself, I had just been paid. There was, I don't know, $1,500 sitting in my bank account. I could buy so much heroin with the money in my bank account and like, that would be it. I could just go do it. And in that moment, I had what could only be experienced as divine intervention. I felt my grandfather, my Vivu's presence in that room. And his presence gave me a moment of clarity, like a moment where I surfaced from so far under the water where I had been living for so many years. And I surfaced and had the strength to say to him, please call a facility. If you can find somewhere tonight, I will go. By the time, you know, between me saying I would go and when he said, like, pack your stuff. And in those three minutes, I decided that this was the worst decision ever and there was no way I could do it. So I made every excuse in the book why I wasn't going to go. And he was like, we're going right now. Like, you're going to pack your stuff or I'm going to pack it for you. And I did. I packed up a few things and I let him drive me and I let him drop me off that night. 
My parents didn't know where I was. I had to call my mom and say, I need you to know that I've been using drugs and I need you to know that I'm in an inpatient rehab facility right now. I'm absolutely certain I broke her heart in that moment, but I went. doing a group session three or four days into rehab and something happened and I like laughed spontaneously (laughs) and immediately had a panic attack curled up in the corner like shaking and breathing and thinking I was having a heart attack and after I talked to the therapist what I realized was that I had been happy for a moment the idea of just being happy was terrifying because what comes after being happy I I didn't know anymore. So rehab was a good experience in that I definitely got detoxed. I was rehabilitated. I met an incredible therapist who actually I ended up working with for the next like 15 years who really helped me start to unpack my trauma. And I was, you know, in recovery for a year and then I relapsed. I had gone to every meeting I was supposed to and checked off all my boxes and checked off all my therapy sessions. And I found myself at a friend's house one night with an unfamiliar group of people. And I walked by the bathroom and somebody had some powder on the counter and they were like, do you want some? And I said, sure. And I don't even know to this day what it was. It just went down the back of my throat and I was off and running again. And I self-arrested. I called my outpatient clinic and I said, I need to come back in. And that was 1999. And that was the year that I entered into recovery for the last time. How did you have the agency to do that? Because I imagine like the pull of that previous life, there so, was so much momentum behind it. And then, I mean, even a year of not doing it only subtracts a bit of that momentum. How did you have the mental clarity just to say, I've had enough? I was terrified. That's it. I was terrified. I knew that there were only two ways out of this equation, right? I was going to die or I was going to go to jail. It's incredible to me the amount of drugs that I sold and carried and did and the people I ran around with and the guns I was around. Like, it is a Christmas miracle that I did not overdose or get arrested at any point in my career. Like, that is straight up God looking out for me. I had a year where I was in recovery and starting to rebuild my life. I was starting to rebuild relationships. I liked the person I was starting to become, or at least I didn't hate myself so much. I don't know. I don't know how I self-arrested, but I did. Going back to rehab signified more than recovery. It was a revelation. Melissa needed to reconnect with the girl buried underneath the drugs, trauma, and pain. Happiness wasn't about looking for that next chemical high. It was about those Sunday gatherings at her grandparents' house and those holiday potlucks where the dessert table overflowed with fresh pastries. What truly defined her identity were these moments. Those moments that made her feel loved, not the assault or the drug abuse that brought her down. Since her teenage years, she had tried to leave her trauma in the dust by driving on autopilot. But now she was realizing that moving from the back seat to the driver's seat wasn't even the hardest part. The hardest part was taking the steering wheel. 
So this time around, I thought, I'm changing everything. And I mean everything. I got rid of clothes and changed my wardrobe out. I changed the music that I listened to. I moved. I got a new job. I made a new friend group. I started going to the gym every single morning at 5 a.m. Because drug addicts don't go to the gym at 5 a.m. They just don't. You know who does? Healthy people with healthy habits. I was going to be a healthy person with healthy habits. What I adopted in the moment was essentially a growth mindset. And I just didn't know what it was called in the moment. But this idea that like with hard work and dedication and perseverance, I can become and do anything I want to be and anything I want to do. I would tell people a year into this recovery, like actually I'm a recovering drug addict. And they would go, no, they didn't believe they could not believe it. They couldn't see me like that. And I was like, perfect. That's exactly what I want. For the first time, I didn't feel like I was an imposter in my own life. It felt like I was actually reclaiming my life again. And that is a critical difference. I didn't feel like I was faking it. I felt like I really could own and accept the feedback that people were giving me, how they were choosing to experience me because I had put so much work into that. I created it and they were experiencing it. And that felt very validating. We'll be right back after this break. So I've been drinking a lot of coffee lately, and I recently heard about this one coffee called Kopi Luwak. And it's pretty weird because, uh, well, you know what? I'll just let Jack Nicholson take it away. Kopi Luwak is the world's most expensive coffee. And it's expensive, well, because of a very unique process that has to do with a tree cat that eats eats the the beans, beans, digest them, and then defecate. Then people collect the stools and process them into coffee. So basically, it's cat poo coffee. And that got me a little worried. Like, have I inadvertently had this before? So I called up my local Starbucks and asked, is there poop in my coffee? Hi there, this is Starbucks. I'm Pico and Lincoln. Antonio speaking. I was reading online and I heard about this coffee called Kopi Luwak. And I'm, I'm worried if there's poop in, in the Starbucks coffee. Uh, no, there is not. That's a special type of coffee, and we do not sell nor do we use that type of coffee. How do you know there's no poop in there? I, well, I, um, I can't one hundred percent assure you that our coffee is poop-free. Wait, so there's so you're not sure? I cannot guarantee you one hundred percent. Man, I wish determining if there was poop in your coffee was as simple as sharing an episode of Finding Founders with your friends. But unfortunately, I do not have control over the complete supply line, so I can't guarantee you 100% that there is no fecal matter in the coffee. Yeah, I guess poop coffee surveillance is harder than screenshotting Finding Founders and posting it to the social media for choice, or just texting it to a friend. Unfortunately, it's not. Well, if you ever feel like you need to calm down or want to listen to some interesting, inspirational stories, you should check out Finding Founders. Will do. Thank you for the advice. Thanks. So just remember, whether or not there's poop in your coffee, you should check out Finding Founders and make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to the podcast. American poet Walt Whitman once wrote, either define the moment or the moment will define you. Ever since she was 16, Melissa lived purely on survival mode, with shame and self-doubt commandeering her decisions. Now, she was taking charge of her identity. From daily workouts at the gym to getting her undergraduate degree, Melissa was like a metamorphosed butterfly. 
The cocoon she had woven to shelter herself against the pain of her traumatic past was finally unraveling, allowing her to spread her wings and soar for the first time. Instead of someone plagued with self-doubt and shame, Melissa was now someone she was proud of. Her resolve, her persistence, transformed her into a completely new person. One who was determined to make fitness and health top priorities. During the time that you were taking these business classes and, and, and finishing up college, you also became like a certified like sports nutritionist and helped run a CrossFit gym. Yeah, I really rooted myself in my fitness and nutrition habits. Like I said, I had a a habit of working out every morning before work, which meant that I was up at like 5 a.m. every morning, driving to the gym in the dark and going to the gym before the office. But I really found a lot of solace in my routine. It grounded me. The healthier I became, the more fit I became, the stronger I became. And frankly, the more people at at work that were like, oh yeah, you're so healthy, the more I was like, okay, I, I want to embody that. So when I first started CrossFit, the popular place to share and connect with other CrossFitters was the CrossFit Forum. And I became very active on the message board. Like many new CrossFit devotees, I was all about it and wanted to talk about it all the time and share with other people who were really into it. So I developed kind of a following on the boards and decided, you know, it would be fun to start my own CrossFit training blog. I called the blog Urban Gets Diesel. And it had a picture of me like flexing at the, in the header. And, and I would share about my CrossFit workouts, but it kind of morphed from that. I really love to write and I decided I would start writing this blog and, and open it up where it gave me a bit more freedom than just a message board. And, you know, a few hundred people started following along and commenting and I began writing about things that were more than just fitness related. I talked about my evolution into like not swearing on my blog. I talked about some of my frustration with current nutrition philosophy, you know, people suggesting that you shouldn't eat too much fruit because it's bad for you. So I would, you know, rail on whatever topic felt handy. And I was doing all of this on my own time. I developed quite a following and CrossFit headquarters kind of took notice of it and thought I wrote well and asked me if I wanted to start writing articles for the CrossFit Journal. So I wrote an article about my experience with the zone diet and how and why it didn't work for me. And that was published and that got some critical acclaim. So I just began getting more and more closely connected with the CrossFit community, which was wonderful because I absolutely loved the protocol. The CrossFit community gave Melissa a clean slate. Unlike the toxic relationships that belittled her in the past, CrossFit empowered Melissa. Whether it was through her blog or her company journal, Melissa had generated a loyal audience that genuinely appreciated what she had to say. And like a phoenix rising from the ashes, Melissa emerged from the flames of her traumatic past, feeling more emboldened about what she could offer her community. For the first time in forever, she felt like her thoughts and feelings mattered. CrossFit had revitalized her, but more importantly, it was the spark that lit her entrepreneurial breakthrough. And I saw you started actually experimenting with diets and really delving into the nutrition aspect of health and fitness. How did you stumble upon your idea for the Whole30? Definitely CrossFit is what led me to a more structured approach to nutrition for performance. 
But CrossFit introduced me to a few new kind of protocols, one of which was the paleo style diet. And I started to adopt more of a paleo approach and felt really, really good. And there was a paleo nutrition certification put on through CrossFit at the time by this guy called Rob Wolf, who's kind of a paleo godfather. I remember at the end of this seminar, he threw out this really casual, like, look, if you want to see if this is going to work for you, like, just try it. So I was working out and training and also dating the man who would later become my husband and co-founder of the Whole30. But I'm sitting around with this man, Dallas, after a really difficult Olympic lifting session. And we're talking about Rob's seminar. And he was like, what if we did this like super squeaky clean dietary experiment for 30 days? And we do it super strict by the book. Like, I wonder what would happen. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds really good. Like, I would totally do that. Yeah, when do you want to start? And he looks at me and he goes, let's start right now. And once again, everything that made me a really good drug addict makes me super good at challenges like this because I looked him dead in the eye. I handed my Thin Mints off to my friend Zach and I was like, yep, let's do it. That was April 2009, and that was the start of what would become the very first like Whole30 ever. This 30-day self-experiment based loosely on the framework of a paleo diet where you pull out food groups that are commonly problematic in order to see how they work for you. You pull them out, and then at the end of the self-experiment, you try eating them again, and you compare your experience. But it was such an incredibly impactful experience for so many reasons. The physical benefits were so profound and unexpected. My energy skyrocketed and stabilized. I was sleeping so much better. People at work said that I was like so much nicer and my mood was so much improved. My athletic performance and recovery improved. Like I had all of these crazy physical benefits. By day 14, it was like someone flipped a switch and I was in energizer bunny mode. But the most interesting thing for me was that this experiment highlighted for me all of the ways that I was using food the way I used to use drugs. And I didn't even realize it. In the absence of those foods, I was forced to kind of go deeper one more level and like sit in some of my feelings. I didn't have the outlets that I would normally have just to distract myself from those feelings. And I learned to communicate with like myself and my body in a deeper way than I had been. I came out of those 30 days with a profoundly transformed relationship with food and my body. So the experiment was in April. It ended in May. And I just thought about it for a week or two. I opened up my blog spot and I started typing change your life in 30 days. That was the title of the article. And I wrote this really rudimentary set of guidelines for what was to become the whole 30. The kind of impact of of psychology wasn't as well outlined. I kind of just recommended to people like, look, don't eat desserts and treats, even if it's technically compliant. Don't get on the scale, right? This isn't about the scale. But here's what I want you to like not eat for 30 days and just let me know how it goes. And over the next 30 days, I would check in with people every couple days and ask how it was going and answer questions. And at the end of those 30 days, I had like 200 people who finished the program and came back with remarkably similar and equally powerful transformation stories. And that was the moment where I was like, this is like something. This is a thing. Whole30 didn't just cultivate a transformation of the body, it stimulated a metamorphosis of the mind. 
So many of us have come to associate health with numbers on a scale, and we've ceased to appreciate the clarity and vitality that accompanies good health. After spending so many years feeling like she wasn't entitled to her own body, launching Whole30 enabled Melissa to reclaim that power. It helped her and others realize that dieting didn't have to be about meticulously counting calories. It could be about improving personal happiness. In an ever-expanding puzzle of her life, Melissa finally had all the right pieces in place. There was just one more component she needed to figure out. What to do about her 9 to 5. About three months after I wrote about it on my blog, we got like a call or a message from a friend of ours who owned a CrossFit gym in Virginia. And this friend of ours was like, look, we heard about this experiment. We think it's super cool. We want to do it as a gym. Could you guys come down here and like do a little seminar on it? And we were like, yeah, okay, sure. We spent the next five hours with about 30 people in a room on a Saturday telling them about the Whole30 and the research we had done and the protocol and the experiment and answering their questions. Didn't charge anybody a penny. And then the next day we turned around and went home and we were like, that was kind of fun. Once news of that little seminar got out, we started getting requests from other gyms in the New England area. We were like, we should probably start charging for this. So I think we started, you know, 20 bucks or something like that or 25 bucks ahead. And we would do like an eight hour seminar for you. And the demand for the seminars were growing. More and more people were interested in the Whole30 as a brand and as a protocol. And finally, by like April 2010, I had some money saved and we decided just to go for it. We thought, you know what, let's see if we can make it work. Melissa was ready to take off and never look back. Unlike the monotonous nature of the nine to five lifestyle, Whole30 infused energy and passion into Melissa's daily experiences. From blog posts to national seminars, Whole30 gave her a platform to make an impact beyond the four corners of her square cubicle. But it wasn't just a business. It was an emblem of her transformation from victim to trailblazer. Having spent so long in the shadows of fear and doubt, Melissa was more than ready to carry the torch of Whole30 and blaze a trail towards even greater fulfillment. Yeah, so we spent all of the rest of 2010 and all of 2011 traveling three weekends out of every month doing these Whole30 seminars. Now we were flying to gyms, we were charging $100 a head, and we were seeing 100 or 110 or 120 people in the audience. It was really cool. And what we started to notice, there are way more than just like young fit CrossFitters here. There were a lot of like older people. And we started asking like, oh, you know, how did you hear about this? And they were like, oh, my daughter told me I had to come. So we started to notice that it was reaching a much broader group of people. And that was really where the idea of the book came in. And we thought like, well, I could write a book. You know, we've got an eight hour nutrition seminar that we've been perfecting for two years that we could easily turn into a book format, explaining the whole 30 and how to do it and an FAQ and our meal template and our shopping list. And so we were approached by a publisher who had kind of a similar idea and wrote the first book. And it came out in, I think, June 2012. It was called It Starts With Food. A few months after we published, we got a call from our publisher and he was like, you made the New York Times list. And I was like, sorry, what? And he was like, the book made the New York Times list. And I was like, how is that possible? 
through word of mouth and through people trying the program and getting amazing results, more and more people were buying the book. And I feel like it might have only been on the list for one or two weeks. Like it didn't have a ton of staying power, but that wasn't the point. The point was I was a New York Times bestselling author and that felt really cool. The community has grown beyond my wildest dreams. I've had a feature in People Magazine. I've done media for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Good Morning America. Today, I've been on Dr. Oz three times. Those have been awesome for raising awareness. Today, we have partners. Uh, There's a Whole30 salad bowl at Chipotle. We also launched our first line of Whole30 branded salad dressings, our first line of CPG this year. We have Whole30 approved partners like Waterloo and LaCroix and Epic and Primal Kitchen and just some of the hands down biggest names. We've done Whole30 partnerships with Whole Foods and Target. I've been to speak at Google and Amazon. We have an incredible initiative around diversity, equity and inclusion led by our director of people and culture, Dr. Carrie Coley Murchison. That's been just an enormously rewarding undertaking, making sure that everyone in our Whole30 community feels seen and represented and valued and heard. I'm CEO of this company and still all I really care about is everyone who wants to do the Whole30, are you able to do it? Do you feel supported in it? Do you feel like it's accessible? Do you feel like we speak to you? Do you feel like you see yourself represented? Like if you want to do the Whole30, can you do the program and be successful with it? And if the answer is yes, that's honestly the only success metric I'm interested in. What advice would you give your younger self, your 16-year-old self today? I think about that a lot. And I don't know that there's anything I could tell her now that she would like be able to believe or absorb. If I could, I mean, if I could, right? If I could give advice and know that it would be taken to heart and acted upon, there are so many things I would say. You are so much more powerful than you're giving yourself credit for. You know, barring being able to like shove advice into her and make sure that it's received. I think the only thing that I really want to do when I think back on it is just sit with her and tell her like, it's it will be okay. All along, I probably knew that. I never gave up on myself entirely. I came close, but I never entirely did. So I think deep down inside, I always knew that it would be okay, that I had a path that was different than the one that I was currently on. I probably had faith in that. I think this quote by Carl Jung perfectly encapsulates Melissa's story. I am not what happened to me. I'm what I choose to become. From CrossFit to Whole30, Melissa has continually fought against the trauma that tainted her self-worth, and she emerged victorious. Whole30 was born out of an impassioned pursuit to restore agency to people's lives. It was about empowerment. It was built on a mission of making people feel loved, appreciated, and respected. And I think this idea of self-worth is often taken for granted. We've all suffered failure and pain, but the real danger isn't the misfortunes themselves. It's in believing that that's all we will be capable of experiencing. Melissa's story has taught us that no matter what misfortune befalls us, it shouldn't tarnish who we become, nor should it demolish how we view ourselves. Whether in school, entrepreneurship, or life, remember that you are not your failures. You are not your pain. 
but instead you are your growth and perseverance. It's not over until you give up. So keep trying, keep striving, and keep soaring. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donovan. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Joseph Cho, Matt Fernandez, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, Shannon O'Halloran, Jess DeSena, Sebastian Gazada, Samuel Stenica, and Maura Lynch. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chopla, Mitchell Lynn, Lise Caldwell, Jessica Gung, Zachary Loudermilk Batia, Kylie McCreary, Lauren Pomerantz. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn. With support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, Ankita Numbiar, Sarah Hobson, Gary Zhang, and Melody Sopani. Our design and social media team lead is Ling Mu Hu, with support from Tiffany Dang, Kayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Carla Ruelkava, and Alana Donnelly. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Nina Maravich. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.